Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We're told where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst. If we're gathered in his name, we certainly are, and he certainly is. So if we could picture it, we're not just opening the word though we are, we're not just studying the word though we are, we're sitting at Jesus' feet spiritually so he can love on us, so he can speak to us, so he can affirm us and correct us, so he can guide us and direct us. In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Anointed, Worshipped, and Affirmed. In this study, we are looking at John chapter 12 in its entirety. In part one today, we will be considering the gathering of Jesus and his disciples in Bethany, where Mary worships Jesus with a costly flask of oil, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the beginning of the Feast of Passover. So let's listen in. John 12 is a chapter of contrast. And we're gonna look at five today. The first between three siblings who dearly loved Jesus, had a personal relationship with Jesus. The contrast will be with Judas who spent much more time with him, but would ultimately betray him. We read in John 12, one, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus who was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew he was there and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The first contrast will be well set up by three people ministering as they always would be to our Lord. The order here is inverted, so I want to put it in the order that will, will give us a clearer picture of how we should go about whatever it is we'll be doing with and for the Lord. Mary sacrifices, Lazarus sits, and Martha serves. Let's start with Mary. Her sacrifice is an act of worship. She anoints him with precious ointment. It's thought that this ointment ordinarily would have been kept for the day of her wedding. Now, we don't know if she ever married, but we do know this. She so loved Jesus and somehow understood what was escaping everyone else. His crucifixion was at hand. His time was running out. So she takes this opportunity to break that alabaster flask and to 
pour that oil over him and, and onto his feet, wiping them with her hair. By the way, women did not let their hair down in those days. We have that expression, letting your hair down. It actually comes because women would only do that in private with their husbands, otherwise tucked up in that little bun or a, some style that didn't attract others. So everything she does is odd unless you consider that she's doing it for and unto our Lord. So Mary is sacrificing. It's a picture of selfless service. And sadly, she'll be criticized for it. She'll be called wasteful and sinful and evil, but she'll also be rewarded for it. Well, as they're there together, as Jesus is sitting at the table, we see Mary sacrificing. We learned way back in Genesis 22 that, that worship always involves sacrifice. And we worship best when we offer to him well, even in our singing, the sacrifice of praise. So it's worship first. And then we see Lazarus sitting with Jesus, listening to him, enjoying fellowship with him. Lazarus, who had, by the way, been dead and buried for four days. And then, well, there's, there's Martha, of course, and she's serving Martha was always serving. Mary was always sitting and always at the feet of Jesus. Lazarus is the only one who's an exception because, well, he'd had such a radical experience. I'm sure death is that. I'm really not looking forward to it, although I am looking forward to what's on the other side of it. And I want to say this is the proper order for us. First sacrifice, first worship. And, and that type of sacrifice, because, and note, our services begin this way, not with studying, not with serving, but, but with, with worship of our Lord. The Lord's prayer begins the same way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about our needs or our desires or our petitions. It starts with just lavishing our love and adoration on him. That's what Mary's doing. And that's how you want to begin. Every time you sit down for devotions, begin it with some worship. If you are the worst singer on the planet or your wife tells you you are, just hum it or worship in your heart or just close the door and enjoy making a joyful noise unto the Lord. But sacrifice and worship, it becomes first and should always be first. And then they're sitting and studying. That's what we're doing right now. And if, if we could see Jesus, it says he inhabits the praises of his people. We're told where two or three are gathered together. There he is in the midst. If we're gathered in his name, we certainly are. And he certainly is. So if we could picture it, we're not just opening the word, though we are. We're not just studying the word, though we are. We're sitting at Jesus' feet spiritually so he can love on us, so he can speak to us, so he can affirm us and correct us so he can guide us and direct us. Anyway, Mary worshiped, Lazarus sat and studied, and then we have Martha serving, and she's improved in her service. I'm sure she was always a good cook. Every time you find her in scripture, she is preparing food for others. That's a great thing, by the way. If you have that gift, I'd like to get to know you. Because I'm a foodie, and I make no uh, apologies for it. I love all that God has put on the planet to eat, 
I was just in Laguna Beach where they love it. They have a lot of bumper stickers that say, love animals, don't eat them. And I would never get the sticker, but I've often thought, I love them and I eat them. And so I love them more because I eat them. Anyway, Lazarus is alive after being dead. And, and so he becomes a living witness of Christ's life-changing power. And so much so, and we read it that, that well, and we'll read more about it, but, but the, the religious leaders are worried about Lazarus. They're, they're like, we're gonna have to deal with this guy. He is a real problem for us. Well, before that though, we see the contrast with Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. He says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Not because he cared for the poor we read, but because he was a thief and used to take what was in the box. Don't feel sorry for Judas. He chose his fate. He was a son of perdition, not a child of God. He chose to betray Jesus, but his heart was bent and was always so. By the way, there is something else. The gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark both mention that the other disciples chimed in they say the disciples saw it and said, what a waste. Why was this not given to the poor? But Judas was the instigator. And I want to share that sadly, I've observed it's easier to get a group together around what they're against than what they're for. And uh, it's just our nature that someone's like, well, I'm against this, or I gotta, we got to stamp that out, or we need to pick at this, or yell about that, or... Well, nobody yells anymore. They just put all caps in the text and, or on the whatever it is. But the point is this. We need to be people who are far more concerned about getting together around who we're for and what we're for, Jesus and the salvation of all men, than, than the things that bug us or bother us. They unjustly accuse her of wasting valuable resources by lavishing them upon the Lord. How's that possible? Everything we have comes from him. And so to lavish it back upon him, there's no higher use of it. Well, anyway, he says, and we read it, let her alone, she's kept this for the day of my burial, the poor you have with you always, but me, you do not have always. Both Matthew and Mark mention wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. So I wanna share with you, that's what we're doing now. We're remembering her as Jesus says we would and should, because somehow in the midst of all the times he said what was about to happen, she seems to be the only person who's really put it all together. Well, the Jews knew, we read in verse nine, that he was there. They came not for his sake only, but to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. How do the chief priest respond to that? They plot to put Lazarus to death as well. Already having determined they're gonna put Jesus to death, but not at the Passover they decided. He'll change their mind and force their hand and we'll read it in a moment. We'll read how he goes about it. But he raised him from the dead and they plot to put him to death. Why? It says on account of him, verse 11, many of the Jews went away and it means went away from them. These guys, they followed and, and revered and respected and, and listened to and obeyed. Now they're walking away and they'd rather hear from Lazarus than listen to them. And so 
Lazarus' testimony had to be a powerful one. Now, it's telling that the scriptures record the miracle, but not one word from Lazarus after. Why is that important? Because there are those today who have near-death experiences or actually their death experiences and then they're brought back. Maybe you've heard some of the testimonies or read about them. I have a problem and, and, and it's twofold in that realm and, and here's the first. There are those who say they were on the operating table, they died, they were out, gone for eight minutes or so, they were able to bring them back. And they're like, well, what happened? They said, I saw a glorious, beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. And so it turns out that Christians have that testimony and non-Christians have that testimony too. Why is that a problem? Because I'm pretty sure if there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's a non-Christian seeing it, they're not seeing the light of Jesus. Satan transforms himself, we're told, into an angel of light. He's not the guy with the pitchfork and the little, you know, horns and the, the little red suit. That's like Spider-Man or something. But, but anyway, he's, Satan is the deceiver. He, he's the one whose goal is to see people with him. Misery loves company. There's no one more miserable than Satan who first sinned against God, who tempted Eve to sin against God, and even tried to get Jesus to sin against his father. So, so I do... Want, want to just share that concern. I'm not saying the testimonies of Christians who've died and, and they've written books and all that. It's, it's wonderful, but, but I'm still wary because as soon as they depart from what the scripture says, well, we just can't know for sure if what they're sharing is true. Listen to Apostle Paul on this so you don't have to take my word for it. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 2. You should make a mental note. I know a man in Christ Paul writes, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. He calls it the third heaven. He calls it paradise. And listen, it says, and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul was there. And he says in humility, I don't even know, you know, if the guy was dead or alive. But he's talking about himself. And what he says is it's not lawful for him to say what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced, that it was inexpressible. He couldn't do it if he wanted to do it. So if Paul says we shouldn't or he couldn't, and then we're not sure about who's talking to us and telling us, listen, if you want to know what can be known, about heaven now? Just read your Bible. There's an awful lot in the scripture about heaven. Better yet, if you really want to know what heaven's like, make a reservation because he's only receiving those who do. But you can and will stand before him at the very throne of God. You'll get to be there and see the glory Jesus had with the Father before the world began his own prayer. Well, anointed by Mary and now worship. The second contrast here in verse 12 down through around, oh, 19 or so, is between those who worship Jesus on Palm Sunday with those who plotted his death. And we begin at this point, Jesus last week, Palm Sunday, all the way to the crucifixion, all the way to the burial, but the resurrection happens the following Sunday on the first day of the week. So this begins Jesus last 
week. And it's noteworthy that John dedicates eight chapters of his 21-chapter book to that last week. The next day, a great multitude, verse 12, that had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, that may not sound like worship to you, but it did to the religious leaders. And by the way, if you read all the gospel accounts, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They understood that to be messianic. They understood it to be prophetic. And they said, you better tell them to shut up and cease and to stop. But he said, if I were to tell them to stop, if they were, the very stones would have to cry out. So they're worshiping him and the religious leaders get that. That's why they're so upset. By the way, up to this point, Jesus had never allowed public worship of him. Privately, people had worshiped him because he'd done the impossible for them. But now he's forcing the hands of his enemies who said, we got to kill him, but we'll wait till after the Passover, till after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll wait till the crowds depart and then we'll have to take him out. But he, allowing worship that day, forces their hand. And we'll see that as we read on. Well, the people come and they throw their clothes in the palm branches and they cry out and praise and worship and adoration. And Jesus, verse 14, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fulfilling prophecy, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with them and they that had done these things to him, uh, they remembered that these things were written about him and th those that had been written about him. Therefore, the people who were with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they'd heard that he'd done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I love that statement. Because they're acknowledging, listen, we're losing the people who used to listen to us and revere us and respect us and support us. And they're all after him as it should be. You see, he was the only one who came to tell them the truth. He was the only one who was the way, the truth and the life himself, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by them, he loved them and gave himself for them. He so loves the world. He gave his only begotten son, speaking of the father, that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came to save us from our sins, but not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Well, the third contrast then comes up next in verse 20, and it's between those who live for themselves, as most do, and those who die to self and in the process reproduce spiritually. The first are rooted in the earth, in the temporal, their treasure, their lives, their hope, their future. It's all here on earth. The second live for eternity, whose hearts and treasure 
is in heaven awaiting them. Well, there were certain Greeks, verse 20, among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. That's Gentile territory. They asked him saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It's an agricultural illustration that we're still familiar with today. You take one small seed, you put it into the ground. In order for it to produce what it was created to produce, it has to cease to exist, at least in that form. So it dies to being a seed, but what comes forth is far more glorious. So will it be in the resurrection. We're planted in, we're told, and, and uh Corruption and raised in incorruption. We're planted a natural body and raised a spiritual body. So, so here's the picture. Jesus is speaking of himself because he is about to die so he could bring forth much fruit. Lots and lots of believers who will live forever in his presence, who will worship him perfectly at his throne, who will serve alongside him when he returns to rule and reign upon the earth. He's talking about him, but he's also talking about them, and he's talking about us. Hard to picture you as seeds, but pods works for me. I could see you as pods and you being planted. Well, you're going to bring forth a glorious harvest of whatever you are. And so if, if you're a pod that's not familiar with God or you've heard about him, but you never give your life to him, you'll be planted. And what comes forward? Well, it's just more death, more corruption more nothing as far as life and, and God's hope and plan for you. But when you're planted, not physically, spiritually rooted in him as a believer, you die to self and that's the picture he's given us. We die to self and what happens? There's a harvest that comes forth as a result. We're rooted in him. We're rooted in his word. We're rooted in the truth. So like those grains of wheat, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross as he did and follow him. And as he did, we produce multiples and multiples of believers just like us. It's the plan. It's the process that we would reproduce spiritually. And in Genesis, it says everything he created, he created to reproduce after its own kind. I like that because that means if you're a believer in Jesus and becoming more like Jesus and you share Jesus with others, you are going to reproduce Christians very much like you. And of course, we want them to be even better than we are, but at least alive as we are forever in Him. Pastor Sam pointed out that our service to the Lord and our walk with the Lord has an order to it. First, we worship, then we study, then we serve. But it all begins with worship. 1 Chronicles 16.29 tells us, Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now this is just one of many verses where we are told that we are to worship God. But why? 
I certainly don't want to oversimplify it, but here is a good start to answering that question. In our lives, we worship many things. We just might not call it worship, but God sees it that way. Look at our love of musicians and of athletes and sports and of movies. People go to extraordinary lengths as they flock to watch and adore those that they admire. Even our bank accounts and our reputation and our level of satisfaction and contentment can also easily become objects of obsession for us. In that sense, we worship them. When you understand our penchant for worship, you can begin to see it this way. By calling you and I to worship him, we realize that God's not asking us to do something that's a, a foreign concept to us. We already live lives of worship. He is simply asking us to redirect that worship and focus to him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.